This is Choni's Circle. I'm Tamara Lubicki. I'm Rabbi Paula Rose. And on Choni's Circle, we are going to explore Jewish texts from the Torah through the Talmud and lots of traditional commentaries to grapple with climate change to help us process our emotions about climate change and about this particular moment um, and to help us try to make sense of the world that we find ourselves in. Today we're going to look at a text comparing trees and humans. And we'll see, actually, if the conclusion is going to be that trees are like humans or trees are not like humans. But before we dive in, I think it's worth naming, actually, that all of the halachot, the laws about baltashchit, about not destroying, not needlessly destroying things in nature, but not only in nature, ultimately, all actually stem from this verse. So this is a source text for the relationship that we have with waste and with destruction. So this is Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 20, verse 19. When in your war against a city, you have to besiege it a long time in order to capture it, you must not destroy its trees, wielding the axe against them. You may eat of them, but you must not cut them down. Are trees of the field human to withdraw before you into the besieged city? So according to most commentators, that is read as a question, right? The way that I just read it. Are trees of the field human that they could withdraw before you into the besieged city? It's a rhetorical question. Parenthetically, the answer is no. Trees of the field are not human. They do not have legs. They cannot withdraw before you into the besieged city. Therefore, you have an obligation not to cut them down because they're defenseless, right? They're stuck there and you can't cut them down. And indeed, Rashi is going to read it that way, saying, is the tree of the field perhaps a human who is able to withdraw within the besieged city from before you, that it should be chastised by the suffering of famine and thirst like the inhabitants of the city? Why should you destroy it? And so, again, right, Rashi is reading that text sort of in the same way that it was punctuated for us in our translation. To see this as a question, are trees of the field human? And to answer, no. Looking at the Hebrew, right, the Hebrew is ki ha'adam et hasadeh. And they read that as a question, right? Ki ha'adam et hasadeh. Is a tree of the field like a person? Is a person like a tree of the field? No. Okay. And that is the way that most of the classical commentators read that text. And I would say, sort of showing my hand, quite frankly, probably looking at the contextual meaning of the whole verse, probably the right way to read it. But Ibn Ezra has a different read that I think is important. So he reads it not as a question, but as a statement. Ki ha'adam et hasadah. For the tree of the field is a person, or for a person is a tree of the field, right? Reading those as equivalent to each other. He notes this first translation, right, that Rashi has of reading it as a question, but he rejects it and says, now this interpretation does not appear correct to me. Why would scripture say that you shall not destroy fruit trees because unlike a human being, they cannot run away from you? I believe there is no need for all of this, right? Basically, he says that is too wordy of a way to get to that idea. The following is 
the meaning of our clause. For you may eat of it and not cut it down. For the tree of the field is a person. And he explains what he means by that. That is to say that the life or the livelihood of a person is supported by trees, right? So he reads it not as a question. In the question model, it was, are people and trees similar to each other? No, therefore you can't <laughs> cut it down. He reads it as saying people and trees are similar to each other, right? Because a person's livelihood actually comes from trees. And based on that relationship, you can't cut it down. The reason, by the way, I should say that I think that's a less good explanation is it doesn't really deal with the last few words of the verse about withdrawing before you into the besieged city, right? It doesn't grammatically account for those. It's not really clear where those fit or what exactly Ibn Ezra would do with them. But I think it's kind of striking that these two different readings lead us to a place where in either way, we have this obligation not to destroy specifically fruit-bearing trees in the context of laying siege to a city. But for some commentators, that obligation is rooted in the ways that people and trees are different, and our differences put us in sort of a protector role. And for some of the commentators, it's rooted in the way that people and trees are sort of the same. And something about that similarity means that we can't destroy them. Yeah. I think, though, Ibn Ezra's explanation gets more to what I think the Torah is actually going for. I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there is a follow-up either somewhere else in the Torah or in the Talmud that, well, you can cut down non-fruit-bearing trees. You just can't cut down a fruit-bearing tree. So then you're like, well, it's not exactly because we have pity on the trees because they can't <laughs> run away. It is actually because we know that they will benefit us. Yeah, right. That's right. That's a fair point, right, in some ways. And maybe that's ultimately sort of where Ibn Ezra is coming from. Like, you're right. I think sort of in the larger scheme of what we're talking about, his perspective would account for why this is about some trees but not other trees. Right. So maybe what I'm saying is Ibn Ezra's explanation holds true if you look at the lineage of this idea, mm -hmm. like how it proceeds. But it's interesting to see within just the context of the Torah itself, like the Chumash, is the explanation of this idea of seeing the tree as its own creature that deserves some sort of pity or respect is that within that context what it's trying to convey yeah that's a good question i actually want to look up hold on i want to look up the next verse actually because i think the next verse sheds a little bit more light right okay no this is important the next verse tells us only trees that you know do not yield food may be destroyed. You may cut them down for constructing siege works against the city that is waging war on you until it has been reduced. So that next verse gives us explicit permission to cut down non-fruit-bearing trees. So all of that to say, you're right, Tamar. Right? If the thing that we're concerned about is a tree's inability to withdraw into the city, right? Like that should be the same for fruit-bearing trees and non-fruit-bearing trees. So it's clear that there's something else at play. 
which even if I'm not sure how to make the grammar exactly work for Ibn Ezra's explanation, right, it seems like he's actually getting at something that's fundamentally true here about our responsibility to not cut down fruit-bearing trees being not about the way that trees are powerless, but being about what trees can offer people. Right. But what's interesting to me is this whole section is a little disturbing to me, just because I don't like the image of us besieging a city and forcing them into starvation. Like, that in and of itself is pretty troubling. But the Torah also really values human beings, right? So, like, human beings themselves are very valuable, but you can besiege cities and starve people, right? And so I wonder if this is a similar thing. It's like, actually, trees are very valuable in and of themselves, and we should accord them respect. But if we need them, we can use them. Yeah. Um, And that's exactly the way this text is going to get read as the rabbis wrestle with the idea of of not destroying, right? So they're going to say, you can cut down trees to build a table, to build a fire, to build a home. You are going to have needs for wood. And this is not to say that you can never cut down a tree, but to say that you actually have to think about it, right? It needs to be serving some purpose. And where they're really going to come down with a harder line is about like wanton destruction. You can't just destroy things because it's fun. And there are limits to what you're allowed to do. I wonder also if the thing about fruit-bearing trees in particular is also an awareness of like long and short-term needs, right? So you feel like right now you really need this wood for the siege on the city. But like that is a fruit tree that could be providing food for people for generations. And even, by the way, for you when you have conquered this city, right? Like that is actually like a resource that looking into the future, you might want to have available for you and for your descendants. And so I think, in part, this is a reminder to think about long and short-term needs of what are the ways that we're using things for right now, right? And it's not that we're never allowed to attend to our immediate needs, right? Like, we have to do that also, but to do that with an awareness also of what the long-term impacts of that might be. Right. And I wonder if nowadays we actually have more of an awareness of the benefit of non-fruit-bearing trees. Mm -hmm. Because I think in the ancient world, you could have known the benefit of having a sustained source of forestry because you could have seen other civilizations that had depleted that and suffered the consequences. But again, that's like a much larger picture and a much more long-term picture that I'm not sure. So I don't know. Do you know of any sources in the Torah or the Talmud that talk about trees, non-fruit-bearing trees, from a perspective of their usefulness to maintain? That's a really interesting question. I'm not aware of any that necessarily talk about their usefulness in maintaining ecosystems or things like that. So first of all, it's worth naming that non-fruit-bearing trees, at a minimum, also provide shade, which is certainly something that even in the ancient world, right, even if you don't have sort of a full understanding of the full impact that trees can sort of have on a landscape, you know that it's hot and you know that you can sit under a tree even if it doesn't bear fruit. So that, I think, 
is important and worth naming. And I think there is sort of a poetic appreciation of trees, right? Trees are often used as like metaphors and imageries in a lot of the Psalms. They're not seen as sort of like neutral and useless, right? There is sort of this like positive association of things that trees can represent in terms of growth and uprightness and those kinds of things, even as I'm not sure of any texts that speak to a more literal, useful role in preserving an ecosystem. Yeah, I guess what I was thinking of is I think I took like a sociology class in college or something, and there was this very persuasive essay about histories of certain civilizations that had disappeared after they cut down all their forests. Wow. So in that sense, it's not a it is about the ecosystem, right? We now have like a greater understanding of how forests contribute to the water cycle and actually help with water availability and agriculture. But I think the framing there was they just used up all the wood and they couldn't build anymore. But again, knowing that that's happening does require some kind of longer term thinking. Yeah. Which I think people had back then, but it's like, what do you notice? What do you not notice? Yeah. And what kind of news and stories are making it, you know, from one civilization to another? How how are things getting passed between places? Right. Because when you talk about the tree being this beautiful metaphor, there's the cedar of Lebanon. And I know those were also used a lot in construction. Yeah. So it's interesting that they were shown as this object of beauty within the landscape, even though they had this like obvious utility. Yeah. So there does seem to have been sort of this ambivalence there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't even know how much, I mean, I think some of it is potentially an ambivalence, but I think some of it is also like a genuine belief that you can have your cake and eat it too, right? Like, leave some of them in nature, cut some of them down, plant new ones, right? right? Like, like they, that right. it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, right? That right. it can sort of be both of those things at the same time. Right. Which I think is how ideally we would want to live also. Yeah. In this day and age. Yeah. I think one other thought, it's like striking to me that... Right, I think mostly the rabbis until really the modern period can't imagine humans using up all of the resources that the earth has to offer. And I think this idea of baltashrid, of not needlessly destroying things, does land a little bit differently today, where like we're given permission to destroy things if we need that destruction, right? To cut down a tree, for example, which is the example we keep coming back to, if we need it. I think it raises important questions about like what happens when the thing that we need or a thing that we need is the non-destruction of the environment, <laughs> right? So, right, I think that like complicates things in a certain way where like we could easily deplete the resources of the planet just by taking things that, I mean, and it gets into the definition of need, right? But just by taking things that we're going to use, but like that would actually be very detrimental (laughs) um, to all of us. So I think there are like important questions there of like, now that we have sort of that perspective, how do we balance using the earth's resources to meet our needs while also preserving the earth to meet our needs, right? There's a different kind of tension there. I'm 
Rabbi Paula Rose, the Associate Rabbi of Congregation Beth Shalom in Seattle. This podcast is a project of Congregation Beth Shalom and Ahavat Ve'avodat Adama, our community's environmental group. Choni's Circle was recorded in Seattle, Washington at Full Track Productions. It was produced by Tamara Lubicki and Dave Dintenfass. With original music by Ella Lubicki Feldman. Thanks for listening and learning with us.